Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. Oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and once again, welcome to this, our show of shows. I'm W.J. Sheehan, author of the series, Bigfoot, Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters. And we are so glad that you could join us today. If you have interest, all of my books are available at Amazon in both ebook, paperback, and now audio format at Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. So soon, folks, uh, Volume One's going to be up on Audible. It's in for approval by uh, the Audible people right now. But as of this podcast, Volumes 2 through 6 are available in audiobook. So keep your eyes out for that. And I have a little surprise for some of you. I'm just wrapping up a book... On exorcism. Whoa. Uh, yeah, it's not uh, a factual account, although the fictional book that I've written uh, is chock full of uh, uh, actual exorcism rites, and uh, I think you'll get a kick out of it. It's a little creepy, it's a little religious, and it's a lot of interesting. So I'll be telling you when that's a go, and... Uh, some of you, I'm sure, will be willing to uh, dig into that and give a listen. It's uh, it's pretty good if I do say so myself. And the events definitely did not happen to your brother. <laughs> <laughs> no, unless my brother's a woman. <laughs> oh, man, there we go. We're doubly clear. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, I'm really excited about this. And, you know, Kev, you know, uh, I've been telling you I've been working on this for a while. And uh, I actually have two books. Uh, one is complete. The other one's nearly complete. Uh, the title of which is The Exorcist, with an S, as in two. Uh, and the first book is named The Exorcist, Truth and Lies. Mm. Uh, the second one is called Diabolica. So I'm excited about it. Uh, it's interesting. It's a little creepy. And, uh, you know, I've taken the liberty of using some factual uh, data in regards to the actual performance of an exorcism, uh, what is involved in the individual becoming uh, what they call diabolically possessed. And uh, just for our listeners, this stuff happens in real time around the globe uh, more than any of you will ever know. So I've just taken the liberty of uh, creating some uh, stories 
uh, about a couple of different individuals who have become diabolically possessed. So for those of you who are interested, you can look forward to that down the road. But Kev, I understand you have some very interesting data for our cryptids in the news segment today. Yeah, we're going to go back in time. And by the way, uh, folks, uh, Bill, as soon as you started talking about creepiness and exorcism, again, I got dog man howling outside my window. <laughs> now, is this Martha the dog man or is this no, another Martha's, dog man? Martha's sound asleep. She's, my, <laughs> she's not much of a howler unless it's feeding time. Uh, I'm a freaking <laughs> dog man in the backyard. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go back in time today. Uh, pretty cool. I found this uh, old article about Sasquatch that appeared in a magazine called McLean's. And McLean's bills itself, at least on the cover of this old magazine that I found, it bills itself as the National Magazine of Canada. Wow. So. Some of our Canadian listeners out there are going to have to let us know if it still is the uh, it still is or ever truly was the National Magazine of Canada. Uh, have you heard of it before? I haven't. Yeah, I haven't either. Yeah, but this article goes back almost ninety years. Wow! So pretty cool, you know the uh, the stuff you can find out there, and you know I, I like to go back in time. Uh, one, to show that this stuff has been around for a long time. You know, these sightings and accounts, in this case of Sasquatch, uh, you know, our favorite hairy man, and um, and that these written accounts are out there. So it's pretty interesting just to go back in time. Yeah, you know, and uh, again, we're talking about uh, pre-internet, pre-television for the most part. Uh, in fact, just pre-television. Uh, you're talking about a day and a time when information was not readily available unless you read an article that was written by Kevin Sheehan. You know, there was nothing out there. Right. And I, and I uh, there is a copy of this article online. It's super cool. The actual uh, uh, periodical. So I will also post that on our website under the episodes uh, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com. So it's pretty neat, you know, not only to... Uh, here, you know, I'll talk about the accounts today and read some of the captions from the accounts. I won't do the whole thing. And uh, I would encourage our listeners to go out there and check it out. And it's kind of fun to read it in the original print as well, although they have it digitally online, uh, you know, reproduced in Helvetica type or whatever. You can also look in the same source and find an actual scan of the magazine itself. Yeah. Now, just so our listeners know, when you go on our uh, website, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, uh, Kevin's done a neat neat job of posting the episodes, the shows, and then just beneath them, there are links. Uh, you have to click on those links and you'll have access to all these interesting things that we're talking about, the articles, the pictures, whatever Kevin posts there. But you have to click on those links to open them up. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, check out the episode. You know, it's episode section and they're not on every episode. But like like last week, we did uh, the Jersey Devil in Cryptids in the News and other oddities. And there's probably about five different things up there under uh, Jersey Devil, which are super cool. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, the listener can spend a little time there uh, delving further into some of the things we've discussed. You know, I think it's kind of cool the way you set it up there. Yeah, cool. 
All right, so this article from McLean's Magazine, published in April of 1929 by a gentleman by the name of J.W. Burns, uh, is entitled Introducing B.C., as in British Columbia's, Hairy Giants. Wow. Yeah, and then the subtitle is A Collection of Strange Tales About British Columbia's Wild Men, as told by those who say they have seen them. Yeah, yeah, very interesting stuff. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we see that, especially when you go back in time and different regions of the world, Bill, you hear uh, the hairy man described sometimes as wild men. Yeah, well, I mean, what would you think if something was running around tall and hairy, had the shape of a human, only gigantic size, and maybe you heard it screaming or howling or ripping trees down? I mean, this is truly a wild man. Yep, yep. And this gentleman, J.W. Burns, um, you know, he writes in this article, you know, he leads into it by saying that, you know, basically there are a lot of rumors uh, that were persistent back then, especially around uh, the folks he describes as the older Indians. You know, now I think uh, politically correct here in the United States, we call them American Indians. I can't really call them American Indians because they're up in Canada, so we'll just call them Indians today. So forgive me uh, if that's not politically correct. Um, but uh, this is written uh, up in British Columbia, which, of course, is a hotbed. And uh, this author, uh, I guess, lived up there, and he would hear these rumors and hear these stories and then went out and tried to interview some of these Indians that had encounters with uh, Sasquatch. Interesting. I mean, and, and that, that, that's, that's how the it's, article. That's how it's done, right? I mean, he's a he's like a beat reporter, and he's going out pursuing interviews with. If it was a, a crime, he'd be interviewing the victims of the crime, and in this case, he's interviewing people who say they've had an encounter with a Sasquatch. Exactly. So, you know, if it was uh, 90 90 years later, maybe he'd be doing a podcast about his interviews. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to talk about a couple of these accounts. The first one is is entitled The Wild Man at Agassiz. Uh, And Agassiz, uh, assuming I'm pronouncing it correctly, is a rural place, looks to be a very rural place along the Fraser River east of Vancouver, British Columbia. So, Bill, if you can imagine, it's along this windy river at the base of, uh, you know, the Rocky Mountains there. So definitely a place, type of place, where we see a lot of different accounts and encounters with the hairy man. Yeah, and that Fraser River, I mean, that is like a, uh, like a salmon fishing hotspot. Uh, I'm sure there are grizzlies galore over there, and I am sure there are Sasquatch stomping around over there. Exactly. And this account uh, occurred in September of 1927, so a couple of years before the article was written. And it goes like this, that there were Indian hop pickers were having their annual picnic. So I guess, the, you know, maybe this was for uh, some of the microbrew beer in uh, Vancouver back then. <laughs> oh, did <laughs> you say kidding. did you say hop, hop pickers? Yeah, picking hops. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a few of the younger people volunteered to pick a mess of berries on a wooded hillside, 
just just close by to the picnic grounds where they were having the picnic. And they only had started to pick when out of the bushes stepped what they describe a naked, hairy giant. Wow. Yeah. And he was first noticed by a girl who was in the party, and she was so badly frightened that she fell unconscious to the ground. Whoa. Yeah. So, you know, scared enough to faint. That is crazy. And then, you know, one of the other Indians named Point, uh, he saw this girl collapse and he ran over to her assistant and he was astonished to see this giant just a few feet away. Holy smoke. Yeah. And uh, and the the giant turned and continued to walk at an easy gait across the wooded slope in the direction of what he describes as the Canadian Pacific Railway tracks. So I guess the railroad came by pretty close there, and this giant walked away. Now, interesting right off the bat is the fact that the uh, Indian named Point sees the woman pass out and fall, runs over to his sister. Now, we don't know what he's talking about when he says a few feet away. But let's just say... I'm running over to help you as you collapse. If a few feet was five or 10 or even 20, how is it he doesn't see the giant that is a few feet? Yeah, well, you never know. Like it could be, you don't know what the topography is, right, of the land. And then, you know, these could be some really tall, like uh, berry bushes and stuff like that, right? You know. Yeah, kind kind of what I was getting at was the ability of the Bigfoot to be super stealthy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I was talking in our last podcast, I think, uh, about the Expedition Bigfoot show, which I'm encouraging everybody to check out. The woman on there, uh, uh, Miss Mayor, uh, had said when she was investigating the silverback gorillas that at one point she was two feet away from a 450-pound silverback and mm. didn't know it was there. Yikes. I mean, think about that. These creatures, now, I'm not comparing Bigfoot to a gorilla. I mean, why not? We can. They're tall, they're hairy, they're monstrous, they're super powerful. But the thought that this w- gorilla would not move or could have possibly even snuck up on her to get two feet away from her is remarkable to me. Agree. You know, absolutely agree. Let's just talk about stealth. Yeah. Uh, so the thought that a Bigfoot couldn't be as stealthy is, you know, we know they're stealthy. Yep. So this is super cool. So in this same article, the author, J.W. Burns, he writes, since the foregoing paragraph was written, uh, Mr. Point, right, that uh, that Indian that he said was named Point, replying to an inquiry, has kindly forwarded the following letter to the writer, okay, to J.W. Burns, in which he tells of his experience with the hairy giant. So kind of some more details related to this same story. So he says, uh, Mr. Point writes, Dear Sir, I have your letter asking if it's true or not that I saw a hairy giant man at Agassiz last September while picking hops. He says it is true, and the facts are as follows. This happened as close to September 1927 when we were having a feast. Um, 
Adeline August, I guess that's the girl, uh, and myself walked to our father's orchard, which is about four miles from the hop fields. We were walking on the railroad track and within a short distance of an orchard when the girl noticed something walking along the track coming towards us. I looked up but paid no attention to it as I thought it was some person on his way to Agassiz. But as he came closer, we noticed his appearance was very odd. And on coming still closer, we, we stood still and were astonished, seeing that the creature was naked and covered with hair like an animal. We were almost paralyzed from fear. I picked up two stones with which I intended to hit him with if he attempted to molest us. But within 50 feet or so, he stood up and looked at us. He was twice as big as the average man, right? Twice as big. Yeah. With hands, yeah, with hands so long that they almost touched the ground. It seemed to me that his eyes were very large and the lower part of his nose was wide and spread over the greater part of his face, which gave the creature such a frightful appearance that I ran away as fast as I could. After a minute or two, I looked back and saw that he had resumed his journey. The girl had fled before I left, and she ran so fast that I did not overtake her until I was close to Agassiz, where we told the story of our adventure to the Indians who were still enjoying themselves. Old Indians who were present said the wild man was no doubt a Sasquatch, a tribe of hairy people whom they claim have always lived in the mountains, in tunnels and caves. Wow. Pretty cool, huh? So I guess it's like the first story we're hearing uh, is like the the story that's retold, right? And then we, we – and, and, and then uh, – um, when Mr. Burns, the writer, reached out to Mr. Point directly, Mr. Point told us the firsthand account, which is slightly different. Right, right. And, you, yeah. you know, you're right on that because I'm thinking to myself, what happened to going to assist a girl who had fainted? Exactly, exactly. I mean, so it's just, it's like the telephone game, right? Exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah, so this girl had already booked. <laughs> And he's trying to catch up with her himself. Like, I got to get out of here. Exactly. Oh, exactly. So, pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty and, cool. you know, uh, here we go. Uh, uh, Mr. Point said that they were near an orchard. And I have numerous accounts of Sasquatch uh, picking fruit, uh, getting fruit from trees. I mean, they're well aware of what's around them and when it's around them. Uh, uh, for instance, Kev, you know, my friend, Danny, the fisherman. Yep. Uh, Danny's a great hunter. Uh, he hunts mostly, uh, deer and, uh, turkey, but, uh, he knows certain areas where he hunts and certain bushes and trees that attract, uh, in particular the deer. Uh, he was telling me just, uh, yesterday, I think, or the day before yesterday, we were talking and he said that the deer were attracted to these holly bushes out at Montauk. He said they pick the berries off the holly bushes or stand by them and eat the berries that fall to the ground underneath them. So, I mean, these animals uh, are familiar with their surroundings and they know when to check certain places for what they like. No doubt about it, yeah. So, I'm sure the Sasquatch uh, are... 
avidly aware of when fruit is under trees and they know it's going to be a little while before it's like uh, really good enough for them to eat, just like we would, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, just like the bears do, you know. Kev, Um, tell the listeners that funny story while we're on this subject about Martha and the tomato. (laughs) Oh, you mean how she picks them and lays them in the yard? Yes, yes. They'll get a kick out of that. That is incredible. And really, really, it lends itself to exactly what I'm saying. She's a dog. It does. It does. And this is absolutely true. So, uh, And I have heard other folks with Labrador retrievers, at least quirky Labrador retrievers like mine, uh, speak of something similar. So my Labrador retriever, Martha, who you hear us talk about, or Big Martha, she loves tomatoes. Uh, I mean, loves. if you offered a, a red ripe tomato or a hamburger, she would take the tomato every time. Like, it's kind of <laughs> wacky. I mean, she absolutely loves tomatoes. And if you think about it, like, I don't know if any of our listeners out there have ever grown tomatoes, which I do. I do grow tomatoes. When you come close to a tomato plant, it has a really strong smell of tomatoes, almost like oregano. You know, plants smell like oregano, of course. But a lot of folks, you know, don't realize that tomato plants, you know, have this very unique smell. So I plant them. I grow them in a container garden just because it's a lot easier. You know, some big, big containers I have. And uh, and I have a fence around them, uh, basically, you know, what we would call a chicken wire fence, about four feet tall. And a lot of my neighbors think I have it to keep the deer out, but I have it actually to keep Martha out. <laughs> and um, But Martha is still very crafty, and she gets her head inside the fence sometimes. And I told Bill that a few years ago, we started to see her where she would grab a green tomato, you know, if there were none ripe and she got her head inside of this chicken wire, she would pull a green one off of the uh, plant. And and we watched her really closely, and she would kind of hide it in her mouth like a retriever does. And then we'd watch her, and she'd run over to, like, the other side of the yard, completely away from the tomato plants, and she would lay it, like, in the, in the tall grass. And we would watch her, like, the next time she came out of the house, she would go over there and check on the tomato. And she would actually, I know it's hard to believe, but I'm sure some of you have seen it with your labs. Um, She would go out each day and check the tomato like she was trying to let it get ripe. Um, Because, of course, a green tomato tastes terrible compared to a perfectly ripe tomato. So, you know, getting to your point, Bill, I mean, animals definitely know, you know, when something's ripe and ready to eat. Yeah, I Uh, mean... I love that. I don't know if they know what the ripening process is or if it's <laughs> magic or whatever, but she goes right to the spot where she left it and checks on it. Yeah, and I mean, obviously she knows that the darker color, whether or not she can see red or not, I don't know if they can, but... Yeah, I think it's probably the scent, Yeah, Because right? a ripe tomato, again, if you had the keen, keen uh, snout of a furry beast like Martha, you know, you could smell uh, or the difference between a ripe tomato and a green tomato. Yeah, I just, I love that story. The fact that she cool. hit it, like, you know, oh yeah, she didn't want to damage it. She just kind of gummed it or put it in her mouth and placed it gently somewhere to protect her prize, you know? And <laughs> exactly. It, unbelievable. Exactly. I love that story. I think it's yeah, fantastic. Furry beast. Furry beast. Wow. Cool. So that is uh, that is uh, one encounter. I'm going to tell you a short, short second encounter, but I'm not going to go through this whole one. But just to give you another feel, this one's called Peter's Encounter with the Giant. Huh. And um, this one, he, he writes about another Indian 
Uh, he says that it happened in the evening during the month of May, 20 years prior. So around 1909. Wow, that's a long time ago. Long time ago. And he says he's walking along the foot of the mountain about a mile from the Chehalis Reserve. And I looked up the Chehalis Reserve, and it's not far away from the previous encounter. So, you know, just to the northwest of the encounter I just talked about, along another river called the Harrison River that comes in there very close to the Fraser. Now, this is also in B.C., Kev? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's very close by. Okay. I mean, I didn't do the uh, distance, but it looked like about 10 miles away. Yeah. Um, And he says, I thought I heard a noise, something like a grunt nearby. Looking in the direction which it came, I was startled to see what I took at first sight to be a huge bear crouched upon a boulder 20 or 30 feet away. I raised my rifle to shoot it, but as I did, the creature stood up and let out a piercing yell. Wow. Yeah, and he writes, it was a man, a giant, no less than six and one-half feet in height and covered with hair. He was in a rage and jumped from the boulder to the ground, and he said, I fled, but not before I felt his breath upon my cheek. Whoa. Yeah, pretty cool. So this thing must have bolted after him, but didn't attack, just really wanted to kind of charge him out of the area. Yeah, and he goes on, and, you know, maybe we'll do it another time, or, you know, listeners can check it out. But he goes on, and it's it's a bit of a chase. So this thing did end up coming after him. Like, he thought he was free from him, but uh, he ran down the river and stuff like that, and this creature ended up kind of stalking him when he got back to his little uh, shanty house. Wow, that is I mean, just... no, nobody got hurt, but it did chase him down. Yeah, I, cool. I think they're trying. Some of these creatures are trying to put fear in you to get you out of there. Yeah, he was definitely afraid, you know, and talked about not going back. Yeah. And and who's to say where that, uh, if you want to call it a bluff, can turn into a full-blown attack? Oh, no doubt. You know, a Who physical. wants to find out, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if something's aggressive enough to chase you... And for a distance to stay on you like that, who knows at what point it might just decide to grab you. No Uh, doubt about it. And you know something, Kev? Even if something like this didn't intend to kill something, uh, it wouldn't take much, uh, even if it was accidental, if I could use that word, to turn something that may have been some real aggressive toying into, you know, a full-blown killing. Yep. So uh, I could see that happening, you know, you just, you know, like I told you many, many months ago when my friend Joey said to me, if you don't want to get framed, stay out of the picture. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, don't arm wrestle with Bigfoot. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. Oh, wow. That's freaking incredible. Yep. Yeah, so great, uh, great article out there. Uh, again, I'll put it on the website, um, on our website, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, so folks can check it out themselves as well. Wow. Well, you know, uh, I have a really interesting, this is a very bizarre uh, story here, and it just shows me, and I think it'll show the listeners, uh, that these creatures are inquisitive, 
uh, they see things, they observe things, and they kind of want to know, like, you know, remember the old uh, statue, Kev, where they'd show the monkey holding a human skull in its hand, looking at it? Mm. Do you ever see that? Yeah, yeah. It's like this little chimpanzee, and he's holding a human skull with his head tilted, like, like he's wondering, what is this? You know, and like, it, it was a play on us looking at them, like, what are you? Yeah. You know, that, that type of thing. But this, uh, this account is really interesting. So follow along with me. Uh, I really divided it up into uh, Elise, the wife, and the husband, Neil. Uh, so I'll tell you, like, when Elise is talking and when Neil is talking, because they kind of go back and forth with this. Uh, this unusual sighting was brought to my attention by Neil Hubbard and his wife, Elise, both of whom are residents of New Hampshire. Uh, And this is what they had to share. I start with Elise. My husband and I had been living in the same home for over 20 years. Our backyard abutted a huge tract of wilderness, and we had fenced in about a half acre of our rear yard in order to to develop a garden and keep the deer out. This fence is six feet tall and made from green-dipped chain link, and there's also a gate in the middle portion of the rear fence for us to access the woods, which we do from time to time. Through the years, we had developed quite a garden sanctuary for ourselves. Our initial plan was to lay large sections of garden hoses around, forming the shapes of oddly shaped puzzle pieces, which would become the shapes of our various beds. Over time, we had accomplished our goal and had created what was a meandering pathway around the yard. When everything was in bloom, you had to kind of wander around from place to place in order to see all that was growing. Now, this is Neil. I had told my wife that I had a great idea about six years ago, but I didn't tell her what the idea was. I wanted it to be a surprise. We had a corner section in the back fenced yard, which in my mind's eye appeared to be somewhat of what I will describe as a grotto. There was a spot in this grotto where I had envisioned a lighted cross, which would be illuminated after darkness by a solar light. The day came when I purchased some 4 by 4 treated lumber and a bag of cement to begin the project. After digging a hole, I placed what was now a cross that I had made from the lumber into the hole and cemented it into place. My vision for this grotto was taking shape as I had now purchased a 24-inch tall polyresin statue of the Ascending Christ made in Italy. Along with it, a rectangular solar light panel. I affixed the statue to this wooden cross and screwed the light over his head with the panel positioned so the light would wash down over this ascending Christ at night. The day I did all of this, my wife was not home, and I would be going to work at 3 p.m. That night, when my wife had returned home, the darkness had already fallen, and my phone rang. It was her. You tell Bill the rest of the story, Elise. So now we go to Elise, back to Elise. Well, 
My eyes could not believe how beautiful what he had made was. The statue and the cross were aglow in the corner of the yard, and it was one of the most gorgeous things I had ever seen, from a religious perspective. When I called Neil, I told him, you're not going to believe your eyes when you get home. That cross is positively breathtaking. So now we go back to Neil's comment. Well, when I got home, she was correct. I stood by the back of the house, looking out over the yard in the direction of the cross for almost an hour. I almost had tears in my eyes as I stood there looking at what I had made. He said, truly God had given me this idea for our yard, and it was magnificent. The back door of our house had what I will call a flanking sidelight window next to it. On cold days and at night, I crack open this door or window and smoke, holding a cup of water in my hand for the ashes. In this spot, and frankly, whenever you look out of the kitchen at night, the upper half of this cross can be seen bathed in the solar light panel's light. Through the years, I had replaced a couple of the lights as they had failed from being outdoors. Well, one night while I was smoking, I was looking in another direction when I thought the light went out. In other words, I kind of thought that it was on and had gone out, but I wasn't certain because I wasn't really paying attention to the cross at that time. I was just smoking and kind of daydreaming. The light was automatic, and it was now off, so in my mind, it was broken again. Stepping away from the door, I told Elise what had happened, and she said, Yes, I know. I meant to tell you it was going on and off the other night as well. Now, this little grotto space was in a shaded area that didn't get much sunlight. So in order to make this work, I had purchased a solar light that had a 15-foot-long wire on it, which was affixed to the solar panel being placed out on the grass in the sunlight away from the cross. There was really nobody in our yard except for the two of us, and we both knew that the wire was laying there when we walked around. But if you didn't know, or we didn't forewarn you of it being there, you could easily trip over it. So, the morning after this had happened, I went out to see if anything was broken that I could fix before buying another light, and I saw that the wire had been pulled out with the stake and the solar panel. It appeared as though someone or some animal had tripped over it, as I just described to you. Well, I put everything back into place, and when I came home that night, it was working. Later that week, my wife had said that it was going off and on again. And as I stood by the back door smoking that night, I saw for myself that it was happening. Looking back, this particular week was moonless and very dark, and why I mention this will become very clear in a moment. Several weeks had passed, and the moon phase was waxing greater with each passing day until it was just about full, and the night was crystal clear. As I stood by the window smoking, as was my habit, I was looking straight at the cross, and I swore to myself that something had actually stepped in front of the light, blocking it from view. As far as lights go, 
This was only a small square of LEDs, maybe five inches square, which projected a narrow, soft shaft of light over the body of this polyresin Jesus. There was almost no wash from the light occurring more than a foot or so on either side of it. In the moonlight, and now being mindful of what I had just seen, I could vaguely see the outline of something enormous in front of the cross. As my eyes focused, I realized that whatever this was, it was gigantic, and I could now see it shifting slightly from side to side. This was evidenced by it moving in and out of this soft wash of light to the sides of the bushes. Suddenly, this thing turned to the left, and I saw a long arm swing as it stepped away. Not being a fan in any way of the so-called Bigfoot, I knew immediately that this was what I was looking at. That's all I can say. Hmm. I stepped away from the window, not really knowing what, if anything, to say to Elise. And my mind was suddenly in a fog. The following morning, the irrigation sprinklers had been on, running through the various zones starting at 3 a.m. And the grass and flower beds were well watered. As I walked out back by this grotto, I was looking for evidence of what I had seen the night before, which was something I hadn't done the morning I saw the wire pulled up and the solar panel. One of the crossbars on the top of the chain-link fence was bent down slightly, maybe six inches, in a spot some 40 feet away from the grotto, where there was a slight break in the wall of trees and shrubs. As I walked over to look at it, there were several deep impressions of a large foot in the soft soil of the bed, as, what, as well as what I could tell were more footprints in the lawn going over to the foot of the cross. This Bigfoot was in some way attracted to this illuminated object in the middle of the night and was coming in and out of our yard to stand in front of it and look at it. It was blowing my mind. Two days later, the moon was full, and my wife was at her girlfriend's house for the evening. Being off, I purposed in my heart to put a pot of coffee on and hang around the kitchen, watching for something to happen, and happen it did. I was pouring a cup of coffee when out of my peripheral vision the light went out. I stepped over by the door and I could perfectly see the outline of this massive beast. The top of the cross was over five feet tall in the grotto, and the top of the Bigfoot's head was at least three feet over that. Its body consumed the horizontal wood of the cross, which spanned a, a width of over three feet, and there was only the slightest amount of light visible to either side of the creature's body. For whatever reason, I decided to open the door gently and then slam it shut to see what would happen. As the door slammed shut, this Bigfoot lurched and turned around, now facing the house, and as it did, I saw a pair of large, red, glowing eyes. I could also just make out white teeth from the available porch light at that distance. Seconds, seconds later, it leaped out of view as I heard the fence rattle, followed by it running off into the woods. The next morning, the top rail of the fence was bent down almost two feet, 
which indicated to me that on past days it had most certainly entered with a gentler approach, perhaps just resting its hand on the rail and making a six-foot leap, which is insane in and of itself. Not being able to contain myself in telling my wife, in not telling my wife, as well as being fearful of it coming around during the day or an evening when she might be in the yard, I told her what happened. As you would imagine, she was blown away by the tale, uh, and I was having lived, and I having lived through it. We decided to remove the apparent attractant by taking the light down from the cross. And over the next weeks and months, I saw no further indication of the creature entering the yard. In fact, I had forcibly bent the rail back up into a somewhat normal straight line and saw no variation occurring over a period of time. We never reconnected the light to this day, which to us was a crying shame. Mm, little uh, Bigfoot place of worship in New Hampshire. Huh? Unbelievable. Chase. I mean, you know, and they, it's interesting too how they both thought that there was a problem with the light uh, going off and on, and he had had a couple of them fail on him from being outside. Sure. But uh, the way, you know, fate would have it, he standing there one night in the moonlight smoking and realizes, hey, wait a second here. Like, I'm, I'm seeing an outline of something there shielding the light. Mm. You know, and it, but it had to be the right circumstances for the evidence to fully come around, you know? Yeah, no, that's wild. Yeah. Wild story. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, you know. And we got the red glowing eyes again. Ugh. Yeah, you know, but you think about it. I mean, even in human terms, right, we're drawn to light. I mean, if you're in darkness and you see something illuminated and you have a little time, you might walk over there to see what it is, right? Oh, yeah, especially where there was never anything illuminated before. Right. right? So if this, if this creature, this was its domain... And it was kind of used to walking around in this woods, going to and from someplace, and suddenly a light appears there. He's like, you know, what's that? You know, kind of like us seeing a fire in the woods, right? You go over to see who's sitting by the fire. Yep. Very, cool. uh, Really uh, interesting, you know. And then when he removed the light, it stopped coming there. He didn't see any more uh, uh, a bend in the fence from the thing hopping over it. Uh, but, you know, really, I mean, just crazy, crazy stuff, you know, uh, what people are coming across. Yeah, no doubt about it. Very cool. Yeah. And, of course, New Hampshire, a bit of a hotbed for hairy man sightings. Yeah, I mean, you know, anywhere and everywhere. I mean, if there's food, if there's, uh, I guess, you know, I don't know, Kev. You know, if you think about the Yeti. The Yeti doesn't seem to be adverse to cold. Otherwise, it wouldn't be where it is, you know? Right. Uh, and I wonder sometimes about the the Bigfoot, you know, uh, uh, B.C., I mean, British Columbia and certainly uh, areas of Canada. I mean, right now we're looking at the weather map today and they're showing the cold mass of air pushing down out of Canada. Uh, which is dropping our temperatures today into the 20s and with the wind probably uh, into the low teens. 
But, you know, the folks in Canada regularly have this Canadian cold air mask this time of year. So, Oh, yeah, I go up there on business. It's cold, brother. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking, you know, all of these Bigfoot up there uh, hanging around in these areas, uh, I mean, I guess they don't feel it or it doesn't really bother Well, it's them. whatever they adapt to, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, it's just, no doubt about it. It's interesting, you know. I mean, uh, now... I got to jump on something for a second. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just discussion. So I'm watching this Expedition Bigfoot show. And on two occasions, uh, they picked up some thermal imagery of uh, the one, I swear to you, I mean, this is a Bigfoot. Uh, and the second one, the another one of the investigators picks up on a real hot image that appears to be standing next to a tree. On both occasions, these two images that were seen, and I mean they look as hot as a bonfire on the thermal imager, and then they were gone. But it's not the fact that they were gone that I want to talk about. In both of the filmings, it looked like these two images slid behind the corner of a straight wall. In other words, I don't care how big the trees are, and they weren't gigantic. We're not talking about sequoias here. They were like normal trees. Uh, in both of these instances, it looked like the thermal image stepped behind a vertical straight line uh, similar to you filming me, say, walking behind a, the back of a building with a camera, a concrete building. Hmm. And I couldn't wrap my mind around. Now, I mean, some of the naysayers would say, well, it's staged, it's CG, it's whatever. Uh, but to me, I don't buy that. But what I was wondering was, it was almost like they slid behind a veil, like they were in one dimension and just like moved off into another zone or dimension. Very, very strange. You know, because Kev, if you were filming me with infrared and uh, I was hiding behind a tree in the woods and you saw like my right arm sticking out, I don't care how dense that wood, woods is. If you were zoomed in on me or watching me and I started to move away from that tree... Even if momentarily I was obscured by certain things, you could see uh, patches of my heat through openings in the leaves and the canopy or whatever as I moved away. Yeah, I suppose unless you move behind a couple of trunks, you know. Right. Of tree. Right. And it was very interesting, very, very interesting indeed to see this uh, type of thing going on. And I was just left puzzled. I mean... I believe what these people are doing is legit, uh, and their uh, motives are pure. So uh, I'm following along with them, and I'm saying, man, this is just this very bizarre behavior. Anyways, I just thought I'd bring that up because it's all grist for the mill, as I said. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got the Harry Potter invisibility cloak going freaking on. freaking weird, man. Bigfoot. I mean, yeah. just strange, strange stuff going on, which fuels the fire that I lit, which is that I believe there's a couple of different things going on here, and I'm not too sure what they are, 
And to be honest with you, I'm never going to have the answers. It's all subjection and uh, imagination, whatever you want to call it. I just have my own feelings about uh, some of these activities, you know. Very bizarre. Very cool. Good stuff. Yep, yep. So what do we have, my brother, in the uh, listener mail? Yeah, we got some good listener mail. So um, the first one is from Ken. And Ken writes in from Japan. And if you recall, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, we had uh, some folks asking questions about Japan and, uh, you know, if there's a hairy man there. And Ken is actually writing back related to that. So he says, just to let you know, I love your podcast. It's both fun and informative. I just listened to your podcast and heard another listener's comments who is also in Japan. It's true, Japan has vast areas of mountains and forests, but I have never heard of a creature like Bigfoot. But they have many strange creatures in their mythology. And then uh, we'll give him a little shout out here. He says he's attempting to find out more about Japan and understand it better. Uh, So he's recently started a blog called JapaneseTales.com. So he says, hey, you know, let your listeners know about it and uh, check it out. Uh, So we'll give... Ken, a little shout out there. And then I wanted to mention, too. So, you know, when we had the person write in from Japan initially, I was kind of and then thinking about after seeing Ken's uh, email, I was thinking, you know, maybe we'll do something in the other oddities uh, segment, because the only thing I think of that's super weird from the times I've gone to Japan is this uh, suicide forest. Have you heard of that? Yeah, that is freaking disgusting. It's creepy. Yeah. 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 And you talk about the, demonic and my book on exorcism. Absolutely. Yeah. People, I'm telling you, you have no idea the stuff that is going on under your nose around the globe in regards to the demonic. Yeah. And in, in this book or these books that I'm writing, like I said, I've taken the liberty of bringing fact and fiction together. But, uh, you know, the Catholic Church, of which I am a part, actually has the rites of exorcism. And this is a grouping of prayers and basically a format uh, that's used by uh, priests uh, in exercising uh, demonic entities from human beings. Uh, This wasn't written up as a comic book. This is the real deal. And people do uh, get overcome by these things, which is exactly what I believe is going on in that suicide forest. Yeah, so you know this place. It's uh, it's out in rural Japan on the slopes of Mount Fuji, beautiful Mount Fuji. Um, the Japanese name for the forest is, uh, and I'll do my best to pronounce it, but Aoka Gahara. And um, you know, and the the legend or the mythology around the forest is that a lot of spirits of dead people go there. And, you know, way too many people go out there, especially young people, and uh, they end up committing suicide there. So it's a big problem for Japan, and it is viewed as, you know, some type of uh, evil thing going on in this beautiful setting. So maybe we'll maybe we'll put that in uh, cryptids in the news and other oddities one of these days. Yeah, I'll put it on the list. Yeah, let's uh, let's do something on that, Kevin. Maybe we could expose a little something for some people sure. to grab a hold of other than going in that woods and shooting themselves. 
Exactly. You know, exactly. they have signs. They have signs and stuff. Yeah, that's what they that say on all the trailheads, you know, knowing it's a, a spot of high suicide to kind of don't forget your family, you know, and call call someone. Yeah. Kind of don't do it. Yep. You know, it's such a terrible, terrible problem just everywhere, not only in the suicide forest. Yeah, no, it really is. Yeah, all right. So we'll go to our next uh, note from Mark. And uh, Mark's subject got my attention. It says, Bigfoot, yeah, we. (laughs) 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 All right. So he says, I found your show a couple of months ago and I've been binge listening. All caught up now. You two are awesome. I drive a truck in eastern Washington. My route is over three hours each way every day, so I listen to your show every week. I'm a huge believer in Bigfoot. He says, my wife thinks I'm crazy, but it's very fun and interesting to me. I've never seen one, but quite a long time ago, when I was 16 or 17, I was hiking with a friend way up on a trail in central northeast Washington. We hiked quite a ways north on the trail, looking for a creek or any sort, but no luck on finding water. We stopped and put our tent alongside the trail late afternoon. As we lay in our tent, it seemed to have gotten very quiet, and laying there, I had a sense of something, then heard three loud wood knocks. No other noises or anything. The next morning, we headed out with nothing else unusual happening. I tell my wife this story, and she just laughs. Well, that's all I have. Love your show. You two are great. Wow, that's awesome, you know? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks for the kind words, and thanks for sharing uh, the uh, account as well. Yeah, you know, and again with the wood knocks and uh, him being observant enough to realize what he was hearing, and then just to share it. I mean, it's just a connected dots data stream, and somebody like Mark or somebody like anybody else uh, who's listening, if you've got something to share, reach out to us. I mean, we're here to uh, uh, bring what you've seen to the the rest of the listening public, and we want to hear it ourselves. Yeah. Just yep. amazing. Su- super cool. Yeah. All right, and then Debbie writes in, and she says, Just want to let you both know how much I enjoy the show. I found your podcast after hearing Wes interview Bill over on Sasquatch Chronicles. Uh, Big shout-out to our friend Wes. I've never had an encounter or sighting, but I live in the foothills of the Adirondacks in central New York State. I'd love to know if you've heard of any Adirondack sightings. And Debbie, yeah, we definitely have heard of Adirondack sightings. You know, my my favorite one is the Whitehall, New York, New York uh, sighting that we did uh, did a story on. So so go check that one out. Yeah, and uh, Debbie, if you listen over time, I mean, I I know I have numerous accounts running up through the Adirondacks. Uh, And, of course, she's talking about the Adirondacks in New York in particular. But the Adirondacks is a very long mountain chain. Yeah. So I think that, you know, these are like a travel route. Uh, And if you believe these stories about the uh, Ridge Walkers, as we were talking about with the Marble Mountain account, uh, these things to me are using the high ground uh, to walk along. Uh, or as a trailway to get from point A to point B. It's all speculation. We have no way of proving that. 
But I think they're in the Adirondacks and in the Rockies and uh, at the rim of the Grand Canyon, the Mangahalan Rim or whatever we call that place, Kev. Yeah. Uh, in uh, West Virginia, you know, all of these different places, I think they are fond of mountain ranges and mountainous terrain. So, uh, but you keep listening and we'll be uh, uncovering facts uh, I have a lot, a lot of information to cover, and we're going to be doing this a long time, God willing. So <laughs> just just stay tuned, and uh, we'll be hitting on some Adirondack stuff. That's good. Well, thanks, everybody, for your mail. Send it in. Keep the input coming. Uh, we love it. You know, just drop us a note on contact us at our website, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com. Uh, and while you're listening, uh, please go to your favorite podcast player and give us five stars. We really appreciate it. Um, the more uh, ratings we get, especially those five-star ratings, that brings more listeners to our podcast. And uh, our podcast is definitely growing, and that really helps Bill and I out continue to, to continue to bring you guys quality uh, podcasts as best we can. So thank you very much for your support. Awesome. And folks, go out there and buy one of my books. Show some support in that regard as well. So, remember, until we meet again, if you find yourself wandering around in the forest this week, please, always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight. Sleep tight.